In the twisting catacombs and ruins of the Necromunda Underhive, there are those who use their skills and knowledge navigating the tunnels to earn their living guiding gangs through peril to new opportunities. So grab your ammo and your respirator and join us on The Dome Runners. Listen here, you little whelp. If I had to force this door open, I'm beating you to death with your own arms. Silence in return. The hulking figure sighed, stretching his overgrown musculature in preparation for the lift ahead. Jamming his enormous, callous fingers into the teeth where the large mechanical doors met, Ruck strained against the gears many times older than his vacrone form, letting out a bellowing grunt that echoed through the corridor, the sound of strained metal, and then a crack of something breaking. The mountain of a man grinned a wide smile that let the ganger with him know that reddish work was coming, and with a last bit of exertion the door ground open wide enough for two men or a single goliath to walk through. The hall on the other side of the door was dark, no sign of the escher who had been taunting her through the door's vox, making threats and mocking the animate slabs of muscle about their male inadequacies, as if Ruck cared that he would never produce offspring of his own. Most Goliaths didn't live long enough in the harsh conditions of the Factoria to even consider having whelps of their own, even if they were biologically capable, which most Fatborn aren't. No, House Goliath put little stock in fertility as the measure of a man, considering a distinction from the quest for a far more important goal, hugeness. Parenting the next generation of Napborn fighters was at best a simple necessity, one the Napborns seemed fully capable of handling for themselves. Still, the last bit she said about the parts between his legs looking like a shriveled starvation victim had bothered him. He didn't know what about the derision of the lass's voice had gotten to him, but he adjusted himself, reassuring his simple mind that the girl didn't know what she was talking about and was just trying to upset him. He took the first steps into the corridor, squinting in the shadowed darkness, the glow glow from the previous hallway flickering just enough light into the room to give him a hope of spotting her exit. But then, a moment later, darkness enveloped the room and hallway, the glow globe suddenly extinguished. Dirty Escher tricks! Yep, get a globe up! Ruck shouted, disappointed to have used one of his illumination lamps that his boss had given the pair of them for navigating the bad zones. They hadn't even made it past the first Escher toll, and they had to use one of their precious glow globes. Yep, what's taking you so- Yep! Ruck turned and saw the form of his companion behind him, motionless. The giant fell to his knees and then face forward, the darkness concealing what injury had laid him low. Ah, oh, sneaky gits! Come out and fight fair! He bellowed, knowing full well their hated Escher rivals had no appreciation for the simplicity of a straight brawl. It was fitting, since one-on-one, -on -one, face to face, there was simply no competition. A Goliath could tear an Escher in two, assuming he could lay hands on her. Notoriously slippery, the Eshers weren't actually timid. In fact, they rarely shied away from a fight. Close combat with Goliath, no less, but instead of relying on strength, they resorted to the CAD strategy of poison and long, armor-piercing blades and precise backstabs. The towering figure scoffed, sighed, and shouted, Coward! Face me, you sogging coward! Be careful what you wish for, came a voice from behind him, followed by the click of a trigger being pulled on a chem thrower. Ruck didn't even get a chance to turn to see the source of the sound before the caustic chemicals melted his respirator hoses in a fraction of a second, leading him to tear the useless obstruction off his mouth. Inhaling lethal quantities of the gas to a standard human, coughing and rubbing his eyes, the mountain of muscle grunted, Takes more than nasty tasting gas to drop a Goliath, you fools! He coughed, 
grabbing his spud jacker and swinging wildly at the darkness. Then the lights flickered on in both the hallway and the room, and Ruck realized he might be in trouble. Through the tears of his eyes, attempting to protect themselves from the gas attack, he could see at least five tall, lean women in the room with him. A trap. A really, painfully obvious trap. He should have realized. Eschers never fight fair when they have the advantage. Clearly this toll passage was more than the simple entrance to the barren Radfalls tunnels he'd been led to believe it was. Stupid. Nothing made a Goliath angrier than feeling stupid. Never one to back down from a fight, even when the odds were against him. He let loose a thundering roar and charged the nearest Escher, knowing that one of them would probably bring him down, but hopefully he could take as many as possible before that happened. Welcome everyone to episode 5 of the Dome Runners, House of Blades, part 1. I'm your host, Crimson Oracle, and if you like the show, please rate us and leave a review on iTunes or your platform of choice. We hit a thousand downloads last weekend, and I couldn't be happier at the pace the show has grown. I'm planning to get a better mic soon for anyone tired of putting up with the current sound quality. As I considered my approach to the various houses of Necromunda, I had a strong feeling that a single episode wouldn't be enough time to do them justice. That's because the background of the houses, fiction about them, etc., is just as important as the time-consuming topic of building a list and playing with them. As a result, I've decided to split these episodes up, dealing first with the background in Part 1, and then with the gangs on the tabletop in Part 2. So this episode will be a walk through the background and storytelling potential of House Escher, and the next will deal with the mechanics of playing them in the game. But before we start on the main show, I wanted to take a moment to remark on a bit of news that broke on Warhammer TV the other day. Andy Hoare was talking about the new House of Chains book, and apparently the Necromunda team is planning at some point in the future to release the trading post for the game as a living document online. As someone who's been trying to help people get into the game, I couldn't be happier about this turn of events. Currently, if someone wants to play the game with one of the non-House factions, they need a copy of the rulebook, their army's book, and potentially Book of Peril or Book of Judgment for Allies, and then finally Gangs of the Underhive for all the weapon rules and stats. The separation of the trading post from a book allows it to be better kept up to date. It means players only need one book for their rules, with the exception of maybe the Ambot and the Lugger Servitor, which I do think Venators, Enforcers, and Gene Stealer Cults are likely to want, and even Chaos Gangs, depending on whether your Arbitrator allows Outlaw Gangs to take Brutes. But that's something even that that could be added to the living document. So with this change, things become a little bit simpler when you're trying to start the game. There's one less book you need to lug around if you're not playing one of the core houses or if you're playing with one of their house books. This is definitely a positive step going forward, and I'd love to see more of the general rules living online so it's simpler for players to get playing. And one last note before we go, the Nova Open 2020 Necromunda event is officially on sale, and it's selling out quickly, so if you haven't gotten tickets to one of the events yet, please hop on and get there as soon as possible. Jimmy here, I'm out in the Badlands securing a new shipment of the finest arms. We go the extra mile to secure the best hardware and ask to see our reserve collection. Only the finest. Off-world. Hand-band. Tech. 
You get the old-fashioned way, and we pass the savings on to you. House Escher, the House of Blades. Founded millennia ago, their past shrouded in mystery, House Escher is one of many crucial cogs in the machinery of Necromunda. Responsible for the production of the various chems and compounds to keep the workers alert and the Goliaths strong, House Escher possesses a great deal of crucial knowledge about both chemistry and genetic manipulation. Unfortunately, despite this knowledge, or perhaps as a consequence of acquiring it, the Escher house has a unique problem. Males of their house are born severely impaired, both physically and mentally, if they can be successfully brought to term at all. As a consequence, House Escher is, with very rare exception, entirely female. Statuesque and lithe, the women warriors of House Escher are perfect fighting machines. Their stature compared to the meek and poorly fed denizens of the Underhive is likely a result of extensive genetic augmentation, allowing them to grow tall on little rations, making them efficient machines of death in the sparse environments they occupy. Though not as strong as their rivals in House Goliath, nor as well equipped as the haughty Vansar, House Escher relies on the tools of their trade, poison blades, toxic gases, acid rounds, etc., to overcome their foes. Their agility and speed are unmatched, allowing them to land the perfect blow with a stiletto blade at the right moment to lay low an opponent. Equally at home fighting at longer ranges, they favor the more reliable lasgun over the higher rate of fire of auto guns. The warriors of House Escher are opportunistic killers who are only outwitted by the machinations of their rivals in House Delac. Though it is unknown exactly what caused the genetic defect that afflicts Escher males, legends speak of some sort of viral contagion that damaged their genetic material. Others say it was the work of producing Necromunda's chemical supply that's the cause. Still other theories speculate it was their own genetic experiments that caused the flaw. Each explanation is as unlikely as the last. The truth is lost to the millennia and likely never to be answered definitively. Regardless, as a result, House Escher has resorted to all manner of experimentation to attempt to reproduce. It is believed they mostly rely on archaeotech from House Vansar to induce asexual reproduction, which is to say, a form of intergenerational cloning. It's even suggested that they have managed to master merging two egg cells to create a new zygote, allowing two Escher women to conceive a child together. Whatever the means, Escher clan maintains a healthy population despite their very rocky relationship with House Vansar, but we'll get to that in a bit. House Escher are known for using the chemical dependence of the denizens of Necromunda to manipulate their way to greater power and higher stature than most other gang houses are allowed. You can often find Escher gangers high in the spires, gambling in high-end casinos, making gaudy displays at uphive parties, knowing full well they won't be kicked out because they have the narcotics the hosts need to lubricate their social functions. Yet, despite the lofty places they have access to, most Eshers look down on the Uphivers, correctly viewing them as soft and spoiled. In truth, most are far more comfortable in the dive bars, drinking the finest liquor they can stock, than in the presence of their supposed betters. They value authenticity and stay true to their low origins. There's a strong early 80s punk flavor running throughout the gang, from leather jackets and wild hairdos to drug abuse and in-your-face attitude. Which is not to say they don't revel in the opportunity to add decadent flair to their gear. They wear exotic feathers and furs whenever they can and flex on other Escher rivals with their fineries. Perhaps a consequence of the struggle with their male offspring 
or perhaps as a result of having to deal with the dregs of the hive's male population in the depths of the underhive, the women of House Escher have developed an extraordinary distaste for men of all sorts. Viewing them as dim-witted and slow, House Escher considers the female form superior in every way, going so far as to pity men, even those they ally with out of necessity. In fact, this goes so far as to extend to the worship of the emperor in a distinct form, the god Empress. Viewing the Empress as the mother of all humanity and creator of the hives and all of humanity's great works, Escher's scoff at the idea that the savior and protector of humanity could exist in the form of a man, devoid as they are of the gift of life. As one might guess, this deviation from imperial dogma is not universally accepted by the denizens of the hive, and in fact, the gangs of House Kaudor view them as a blasphemous group of heretics, who also happen to poison the children of the emperor with their narcotics and genetic tampering. Many an Escher gang has clashed with the crusading Kaudors, hoping to enforce their narrow interpretation of imperial dogma on the recalcitrant empress worshippers. Escher has equal enmity with House Goliath, even the house's women. The Goliaths dislike them in turn for their smaller muscles and excessive cleverness, viewing them as weak and undeserving of their territories. To a Goliath, brute power is paramount, perhaps second only to raw size. As we learn in the new Goliath tome House of Chains, House Escher's history with House Goliath is complicated indeed. Goliath was the name of an older house that had once been rivals with Escher, but after their destruction, Escher gave their name to a group of slave laborers that they were tasked with creating genetics for by House Helmar. Allied with the Archaeotech of House Van Sar, Escher's chemical wizardry helped create a new stable abhuman strain, possessed of enormous strength and musculature, but unfortunately for House Escher's purposes, mostly sterile and dead stupid to boot. The Goliath workers did their jobs, but the tenuous alliance between House Escher and House Van Sar strained, and as a result, Escher made an important choice to create Goliath women, leading to the first Napborn Goliaths and starting them on the path to slave uprising and the establishment of one of the core gang houses. This is somewhat ironic, as the Eschers hate their creation, considering them to be poisoned by machismo and a pointless obsession with size and getting a good pump. Nonetheless, the emancipation of House Goliath is inexorably the result of Escher's efforts to undermine House Vansar, a consequence the gang is forced to live with every day. This is not to say that, much like every rivalry in the Hive, the two don't depend on each other. In fact, without the Escher-produced chems, Vatborn Goliaths wouldn't be possible, and Natborn wouldn't be able to achieve the soaring heights of muscle development they currently enjoy. In turn, all of the houses rely on Goliath for their contribution towards keeping the hives running and the planetary tithe met. Escher and Vansar have rarely remained at peace since this schism, continually feuding over what scraps the noble houses give them to sustain their operations. Even during their brief periods of alliance, the houses are often playing the long game looking for advantage against each other, sabotaging processes, assassinating key personnel, and otherwise instigating conflict. In fact, when it comes to knowledge, the two gangs are both possessed of a belief that theirs is superior. The Eschers suspect that House Vansar has a secret source of knowledge, and consider their extensive experience with chemistry and genetic manipulation to be earned rather than stolen, and thus superior to the arcane secrets House Vansar possesses. In fact, the stratification of knowledge between the two factions is likely entirely intentional. As with most social relations on Necromunda, the thumbprint of Helmar's machinations are all over them. This is a key dynamic in the Underhive. It's only through separation of the various resources of the planet between rival factions that fight against each other uh, for the scraps that Helmar can reliably go unchallenged in his authority. 
With House Orlock, Eshers have good relations, respecting the importance of women in their leadership structure and relying on Orlock convoys to keep their chems shipped around the world without complaints from the ostensible authorities. Eshers still, of course, maintain a total disdain for male Orlocks, despite their good relations. Everyone who interacts with the gangs of House Escher gets used to a certain degree of derision, generally choosing to look past the insults in the interest of potential profits that come from the collaboration. I didn't find any specific information about relations with House Delac, but suffice to say, Delac keeps all other gangs at arm's length and tries to at least give the impression that they're on good terms. In fact, it's their goal that, should you ever come into conflict with House Delac, they would eliminate you before there's any chance of you indicating who your killers might have been. Specializing in the trade of information, they depend on House Asher for the chems that they need to make their psychers, the poisons for their various house weapons, and the intel that the Escher gangs are able to acquire in their dealings with the enforcers and upheivers. As with everything on Necromunda, there are no true allies, only those of convenience, and the wrong insult can easily end even the longest-lasting collaboration. In fact, even within Escher, there's a constant state of conflict as gangs clash with each other for position in the matriarchy, hoping to grow in stature and even absorb weaker gangs they defeat. This leads to Escher gangs being very battle-hardened. Even at a young age, the women of House Escher are expected to learn the art of gang warfare. There's also the work of gathering the reagents for House Escher's chems, the work of distilling and combining the potent drugs and poisons that the gang sells to whoever is in need. It is said that an Escher girl who can't read doesn't live long enough to become a ganger, working as often as they do with volatile compounds. This is another way of saying that Eshers tend to be literate and bright, unlike many of the Goliath, Orlok, and Cawdor they're forced to interact with. House Escher is quite unique in the game. Visually striking due to their enormous heels and extravagant hairstyles, they're one of the two starter factions in the Underhive set, and one of my favorite factions for teaching new players. House Escher are a good fit for a player who likes flexibility. They do well in combat or at range, though they lack durability in close combat the way Goliath has, and they can't match the raw choppiness of corpse grinders. Instead, they have access to cheap bodies and make excellent glass cannons. As with any close combat-oriented game, timing and placement are extremely important for a successful result. Close combat Escher gangs will rely on cheap juves to either absorb opposing charges or tie up opposing fighters to ensure their heavy hitters go in unharmed. In shooting, they have cheap access to las guns and are very fun and disruptive acid shells that can light your opponents on fire and send them screaming from cover to put themselves out. I've personally played Escher since the start of my current campaign, over a year, and they've been extremely rewarding on the tabletop. In fact, I've enjoyed them so much that I'm planning to play another new Escher gang in the next campaign, this one dedicated to the Dark Gods using the Chaos rules in the Book of Ruin. In the heat of the ash wastes, Running caravans and fighting off bandits, there's only one brand of low sticks the discerning Orlock reaches for. Mardux. Smooth taste, potent narcotics. Mardux low sticks are the perfect blend to keep you alert and ready to gun down whatever muty gets in your way. So light one up. Nothing tastes like a Marduk.
As subscribers may have noticed, each of the last two show openings has included a little narrative vignette that relates to the episode topic. This is something I'm experimenting with as a way to set the tone of each episode, and thus far each has been written by me. This episode I'm also introducing a new segment where I'll be reading a little bit of longer form fiction. In the future, I hope to have a contest to feature live readings of listener-submitted stories, but for now, this is my own work. So grab a protein bar and a bottle of wild snake and settle in by the refuse fire for a tale set in the lowest of the low, the sump bottom, where only the brave and the foolish dare to tread. Leary was bored. She'd been free climbing down the side of an ancient and massive pipe for hours, and she could still barely see the shimmer of the sump sea below. It was treacherous work climbing down, but her crew was up to the task, having explored every inch of the underhive tunnels they'd grown up in as girls. They often said there wasn't a place planet side they couldn't get into given enough time and planning. Boring. Climbing was boring. Gotta find something to do. Hey, Tresha, Lyria shouted up at her oldest friend. What you want? She heard back. Dresher was a few hundred feet up, directly overhead. I was thinking, ain't no harm to play a little oopsie-daisy, innit? You won't throw live grenades on the side of a ruined pipe. Are you mental? Maybe, but I bet you can't get one past me anyhow, so no harm when you think about it. She smirked, knowing that the taunt would goad her friend to try, even though it was dangerous. Fine, you got me. Bombs away, you slag. Catch it or I'll be going to the bottom a bit faster than expected. A ball in freefall came down Deliria's right, and she stretched out her hand, only just catching the frag grenade and quickly disarming the fuse. Adrenaline coursed through her veins as she secured the now deactivated explosive in her pocket. Giggling, too fast for you, lady. The god empress herself has blessed me. Funny word you got for luck, sis, yelled Nora, one of her other companions. The hours passed slowly in the descent. By nightfall, or what would have been nightfall were there any surface light penetrating this deep, the five women reached the bottom of the pipe, a two-foot-wide ledge a scant five feet up from the noxious sump liquid churning at the very bottom of the hive. If the fighters hadn't been wearing respirators, the air would be enough to send any one of them to the bottom, unconscious in seconds, and dead within a minute, assuming they didn't sink beneath the noxious waters. You got a map, dearie? Dresher asked as she slid down on the ledge, rubbing her tired hands and peering at her oldest friend's pocket. Aye, don't worry, this is fresh intel. Wouldn't have climbed all this way down if I wasn't certain. Lyria said with a tone of annoyance. Sure, she sometimes forgot her respirator for missions that needed it. And yeah, a couple of times she'd led them on a wild goose chase, but this was different. This was their big shot. New Escher gangs often form as a consequence of close friendships, each subsequent generation forging bonds that tend to supersede the loyalty to their gang that they cut their teeth in. Once one of the girls in a clique gained enough experience and stature to make it on their own, they tended to split and seek new territories to make a name for themselves. This was the inevitable cycle that kept the gangs of House Escher ever growing, ever honing their skills in conflict with each other. Lyria was second in command of the Dusk Rippers, having split from her previous affiliation with the Silver Raptors when Anna, the leader of the Dusk Rippers, had one day had enough of their former leader's condescension and walked away. Once part of a force that numbered in the dozens and ran chems and numbers all across the mining dome of Boretown, the Splitters had left their old home behind nearly a Terran year ago. Initially only four, they had since doubled their numbers, but while they often found work, it was small potatoes and unfulfilling. When the trading post got word of a big score in the sump zone, 
Larry had taken the opportunity. Anna wasn't up for the trip yet. She'd lost the lower half of her left leg in an otherwise successful daytime robbery and was still recovering from the surgery they'd spent most of the gang's remaining cred on to replace it. Ever eager to prove herself and help establish the gang, Larry had taken her food money and cajoled the trader eating a protein bar at the trading post to spill his story. And what a story it was. A large, undisturbed nest of Nuckermundan giant spiders. Hundreds. A veritable fortune's worth of venom, let alone the riches they could get for the talons and the eyes. And God Empress, if there were eggs. The trader had seen them himself, too. This wasn't some second-hand tall tale. He'd been down to Croc Falls, a settlement about three miles down tunnel and a few hundred feet up another pipe. It turned out he'd upset a gilder by beating McCards and got himself tossed into the perilous waters. Lucky for him, a particularly intense waste flow had diluted the toxic liquid to a strong mixture that left him covered in rashes and caused all his hair to fall out, but hadn't been bad enough to do more than superficial damage. As he floated down the river of waste, he eventually caught himself on a ladder and climbed up to a ledge not too different from the one Lyria was standing on now. Trying to find his way back up, the man had nearly become a meal, encountering the rare and deadly spiders in their nest. There was a clack of Lyria's heavy stubber as Vec, the gang's only Jew, lowered it into Lyria's lap. Good work, Scrag, not a scratch on it. When you climb back up without the stubber, it won't be so odd. Yeah, you sure you can handle it down here? I can keep it for you if it kicks too much, quipped the little one, full of blind confidence that bordered on foolishness. How about this? Lyria sneered back. If you outlive me, then the gun's yours. I'll skip right past Dresher and it'll go to you, but I suspect I'll be singing over your grave long before I meet my end. With all five of the climbers on the ledge, they began the careful work of creeping along the ledges, following the twists and turns of the Sump River as indicated by their map. They'd be to the map's destination in under an hour, with minimal fuss along the way, only stopping to joke and hurl insults at one another when the feeling struck. As they turned down the broken gate that serves as a threshold for the spider's domain, Lyria took a moment to check her gun. She signaled to the other fighters to do the same, taking their safeties off and getting ready. Necromundan giant spiders are a horrifying sight, weighing as much as a large dog sporting enormous venom injectors and a leg span of several feet. One of these creatures was enough to ruin an underhiver's day, let alone dozens, let alone the hundreds the frightened trader had claimed to see. Lyria hoped his eyes were playing tricks on him. She knew that with the proper deployment of her arsenal and the perfect coordination among her fighters, she can exterminate a fairly large nest, but even then, probably not hundreds. Ideally, they would flush out a score of them and collect the carcasses before more came, allowing them to bring in a sizable bounty without depleting the nest for, before future expeditions. An established nest of giant spiders was the sort of thing a gang could grow rich on quickly, leapfrogging their local rivals in the pecking order. As they prepared to enter the nest, the women grew quiet. No more banter back and forth, no more speech at all. There are interactions all now with hand signals, which was second nature to any Escher by the time they were fighting age. The most eager to prove herself, Vec, volunteered to be the first into the nest. She slid through a hole in the side of the bulkhead and looked around. "'It's bones here, and web. Looks legit,' she whispered up to her companions. A few seconds later, she hopped out of the hole and covered her ears, a small charge detonating in the cavity that she just occupied. Standing back, Lyria readied her stubber, training a large gun at the hole, her companions training las guns and las pistols in the same fashion. And for a moment, she wondered whether they'd been too credulous, too quick to believe the stories of some man who barely had the sense to keep himself alive. But several minutes of waiting paid off, with the first of the spiders exploring the disturbance emerging from the hole 
feelers sensing for who or what had caused the explosion. Lyria let rip a burst from her machine gun, and several slugs struck the creature in its soft body, ripping through the exoskeleton and sending ichor splattering onto the floor and walls with a satisfying pop. The next two fell just as easily, wandering out of the tunnel and faking devastating injuries from the stubborn fire. There was another pause. Two of the gangers holstered their pistols and began stripping the valuable bits from the spider carcasses, minutes passing by as they waited for more. When they did come, this time it wasn't one by one. No, the spiders clearly had smelled their fallen kin and waited for overwhelming numbers before attacking again. The brap of the stubborn fire rung out again as the first spider sprinted from the hole, all but one of the potent slugs missing wide. She only managed to hit one of the legs. Her comrades quickly put it down with Laz fire, but behind it, five had already emerged and begun to sprint for the gangers. Lyria felt the anxiety well in the pit of her stomach. Not too many, but another part of her, a part of her that wanted to be legendary, urged more of them to come. As her girls killed the emerging creatures, she continued to plug round after round into their hole, thinning their numbers but not stopping the tidal wave of creeping death, covered in coarse black hairs, chittering as they ran. But after successfully gunning down more than two dozen of the spiders, Lyria's plan hit a snag. The stubber's barrel was glowing red, but the spiders kept coming, so she continued to fire. White. Suddenly, thunk, the barrel bent under its own weight and a round lodged itself in the steel. Hell. Not going to be firing that again without a trip to the ammo jack for a new barrel. She dropped the burning hot stubber and immediately drew her stiletto sword, charging forward to continue the slaughter. Her fighters had been slowly backing away from the hole, trying to avoid getting flanked by the incredibly fast spiders. Nothing to worry about, she thought, only to immediately regret her hubris, as Leaky, one of the Laz gunners, who had two of the monsters scale her body and sink their enormous fangs through her flak armor and into her flesh. Not good. Even if the gang had the creds for an antidote to the spider poison, there was no time to administer it. The remaining four fighters needed to back further up to deal with what at this point started to feel like an endless wave of the beasts. Scrag this, Lyria thought, and she pressed a detonator she clipped to her belt. A bomb just on the other side of the entrance exploded, weakening the foundation and bringing the ceiling down on the bugs and gangers alike. Ringing in her ears, Lyria pushed the rubble off of herself, and she tried to regain her bearings. The light of her shoulder-mounted glow glow showed the air choked with dust and massive chunks of ceiling covered the floor. Probably went a bit too aggressive choosing the size of the charge on that one, she thought. But then, the price for estimating too low would have been far worse. Dresha, she shouted, hoping to find her friend. Dresh, tell me you ain't been brained by an empress-forsaken rock. You're too good to die like that. Aye, her friend said, her voice nearby but muffled, her hand suddenly emerging from a pile of debris. But Nora weren't so lucky. Fuck. The loss of two of the gang's numbers in this excursion would bring a rage from Anna, even if they managed a big score. She dead or just missing. Ed's got to length the rebar straight through the other side. Ain't no getting up from that. Fuck. She'd heard an earful about her own bomb killing one of their best shooters. Still, three dozen venom sacks would more than make up for the loss. Vec, you little shit, you still alive? She asked, hoping dearly that the youngest of their numbers hadn't been killed by her bomb, too. Why in the name of the god empress didn't you say you was blowing the hole, Lear? Vex spat back. She crawled to them, her leg bleeding extensively, but she didn't complain about the injury. We're gonna get this score or just grass about things going pear-shaped? The girl was tough. She'd go far yet if she was well enough to handle the long climb back anyhow. 
Lyria felt around for her stubber, finding the strap and pulling the damaged weapon over her shoulder. She found her sword, too, and sheathed it, pulling a smaller blade from a sheath on Nora's chest and making a quick work of stripping the valuable parts off the spider carcasses and packing them away in her backpack. She quietly kept count to herself as she went. A dozen, two dozen, three dozen, four. Maybe the traitor hadn't been seeing things. There were easily eighty of the carcasses in this tunnel, with Empress knows how many crushed in the spider hole. She'd been reckless choosing the size of her explosives, but her timing couldn't have been better. There was no way her fighters could have taken the entire nest. Now, next time when they come to hunt here, things would be more challenging. But with the credits these spoils would bring, they could afford to mount a properly armed expedition. As she filled her backpack and the other two filled theirs, they grabbed what they could of their kin's equipment and backtracked out of the tunnel. After patching up Vex's leg a safe distance from the nest, they worked their way back to the long climb home. The three of them set about the arduous work of scaling the ancient tunnel walls, working hands into cracks and crevices to use as handholds. About halfway up, they stopped in a little alcove to rest their tired hands and gloat about the biggest score of their young lives. Each pack had thousands of creds worth of parts. They'd earned more in a day and a half's journey than they'd made in the previous year. As they set to climb again, Lyria thought she saw movement on the wall below. Seeing things, she thought to herself, it's too dark to make sense of any of it anyhow but she was right to be concerned. Rapidly climbing to meet the three gangers was a living wall of giant spiders. As the mob closed the gap, Lyria began to hear the soft padding of their feet on the walls and the chittering of their jaws. Empress, protect us, she exclaimed as she realized how quickly the bugs were gaining on them. Securing her hold with one hand, she let loose a string of shots down at the approaching horde. Might as well be pissing on them the good that did, Vec exclaimed, trying to mask the fear in her voice with humor. The bugs would be on them in minutes now. A dresh, Lyria said solemnly. This is my score. I gotta be the one to finish it. Like hell, her friend replied back. I ain't leaving you to die in the sump, sis. And you planning to die with me? Lyria said back, curtly, fiddling with the grenades on her belt. Only way I can see any of us making it out is me blowing the pipe section. Even if you two climb as fast as you can, you might not be clear of the damage. Lyria, I can't have you die down here like that. You can and you will, because you know it's me or all three of us, and there ain't no sense of you dying too. This isn't fair, Lear, you've all I got. Not all, love, not all, Lyria grinned, holding out the pack worth more than her entire life, many times over. Dresher took the bag, threw it over her shoulder, and took a moment to consider her friend. I wish we had more time. They pressed their foreheads together, long their favorite way of saying goodbye. I love you, Dresh. Tell Anna I died legendary, and tag that idiot Rugman's shop one more time for me, if you will. I always hated that prick. And Vec, don't say you love me too, boss. Ah, uh, what have I told you about stowing the lip every now and then? Sorry, boss. Here, Lyria slid the strap of the heavy stubber down her arm and held it out to the girl. Guess you outlive me after all. As Vec and Dresher climbed away, moving quickly in hopes of being far enough from the explosion that the pipe wouldn't collapse out from under them, Lyria climbed down to meet the spiders, firing her pistol down at them pointlessly, shouting insults. As her voice started to fade and her silhouette met the roiling tide of arachnid flesh advancing upwards, there was a series of pops, then an even louder explosion. The frag grenades had set off her melt-a-bomb. The force of the explosion sent a shockwave up the shaft, shaking the two remaining climbers. They held on tight and waited, hoping the pipe wall held. The rumble of the wall below them crumbling was brief and intense like a roar, 
but within a minute the tunnel had returned to quiet, with no sign of the advancing horde of spiders below. The two figures climbed for the next three hours in silence, unable to find words to describe what had just happened. Anna would be furious at first when they told her. Her top enforcer, the gang's best shot, and Leaky, the only decent cook in their numbers, had all been lost. But when she saw what they'd made it out with, well, the gang wouldn't be hurting for personnel or gear, for that matter, any longer. First thing I'm doing, Vec laughed as they reached the top, is paying for a hot shower in an hour with the hottest girl at the bar. Wake up, Hiver. Aren't mornings the worst? Waking up in a puddle of your own sick? Finding your clothes and having to sprint through dangerous tunnels to get to the Factoria for an 18-hour shift. Start your day right with a stop into Sumpin' Donuts for a bite of tasty fried corpse-starched dough and a hot recaf. It'll keep you alert while you work, guaranteed. Sumpin' Donuts. Hive Primus runs on Sumpin'. For this episode, I'm also introducing another new segment, The Librarium. I'll be reading or listening to books and audiobooks of various Necromunda stories, a mix of some new and some classic, and generally relating to the episode's topic. This week, I'm doing a quick review of Terminal Overkill by Justin D. Hill. I'll first talk about what the story is and whether I think it's worth picking up, and then I'll give a spoiler alert and go into the story with a bit more detail for those of us who don't care about spoilers who have already read it. Terminal Overkill is, frankly, one of the best starting points for getting into the background of Necromunda in Black Library's entire catalog. The story follows Brielle, the twin daughter of one of the most potent Escher gang leaders around. Raised far from the perils of the Underhive, she is forced to go on the run and has to learn the hard way how to survive. Her journey is told in a first person as a memoir of her rise through the Escher ranks. It's fascinating and gives such a vivid depiction of the hive that this book will make you want to build terrain, guaranteed. I will say that, not to discredit the book at all, as I thought it was done with a perfect level of detail, there will be passages that will make you sick to your stomach or entirely grossed out. The Underhive is a filthy, terrible place, and the things that go on there, the conditions people live in, the agonies they endure, they're all on display down to minute details. If you've ever wanted details on the kinds of horrifying things people eat down Hive, then buckle up. This book has you covered. Simply put, the book's true main character is Hive Primus itself. Beyond the setting, the story is familiar. I've seen the author compare it to Gangs of New York in an interview, and I think that's really apt. Appealing to anyone interested in stories about crime and gang violence, and best of all, for the purposes of this episode, there's a significant amount of detail of House Escher and how they interact both with their own culture and thrust into a world of unaffiliated hive denizens. The story isn't perfect. I found a few twists to be a bit convenient, but this is by far one of the most grounded, gritty, and genuinely good Black Library novels I've had the pleasure of listening to. I listen to it on Audible, but it's also available in print. I haven't read any of Justin's other work, but I'm going to check it out now as a consequence. So, overall, my conclusion? If you're at all interested in House Escher, or even House Goliath, if you want a view of how the Hivers outside of the gang structure live, and if you want vivid descriptions of the Hive city that will set your imagination on fire, then this is the book for you. With the only caveat that those with weak stomachs may want to get ready to do some skimming. And now, this is the portion of the episode where I let you know there will be spoilers, so pause your audio playback device or you'll hear the book's secrets for yourself 
and possessed with the unnatural knowledge, you'll risk attracting Lord Helmar's Psyhounds. You have been warned. Now, onto the substance. What a book. First of all, we see definitive, canonical depiction of a healthy Escher male. Clearly, this is so rare as to be thought ridiculous by the old Escher women Red tells about her son, but the fact that it happened means the narrative possibility is there for those interested in pulling that thread. One of my favorite parts in the story was when Red presented the boy to the elders, and they kept calling him she by force of habit. I thought it was a really fantastic detail. The author managed to capture this problem that they wouldn't even understand or have the language to talk about a healthy boy. Now, for a second... Jesus Christ, they gave us a healthy Escher male and then capped him in the head. Evil. <laughs> I really was interested in the potential for what his experience would be as he grew up, but it didn't get to be part of the plot, so I was kind of sad about that. One funny thing I want to note for anyone interested is that I listened to the audiobook yesterday after I finished writing the short story for this episode, and I was tickled to find that giant spiders featured prominently in the book. I will say, what I did think was a little too convenient was that Brielle was immune to the baby spiders because of spider venom in her blood? I understand that she did have spider venom tattoos and that would likely leach into her bloodstream in trace amounts, but I didn't really buy that it would be enough to prevent the spiders from eating her. I was a fan of the limited role that Gas played in the story. I think prophecy can be a crutch for storytellers, but they kept it vague, and when Brielle tells Fetnir that she's seen her death and she knows that it's not here, I absolutely loved it. In fact, it was really great that her foe's over-alliance on divining the truth from his hallucinogenic psychic drug was a major part of his downfall. That was a great setup. I also really liked the murder cyborgs, or whatever those two identical assassins she killed were, they were really terrifying, and Braille was lucky to survive them. I was not overly impressed with Fetnir as a character, mostly because, despite looming large over the book, he's barely in it. But I thought his gangers were a great representation of House Goliath, or the meatnecks, as Brielle would say. There's very little I would change about this story, and I'm glad it was the first one I tackled with my little review segment, as I think it could serve as an introduction to Necromunda to anyone who's interested. While I'm always while also fitting neatly with the Underhive starter set's contents, which is still my primary recommendation for the place people start with getting into the game. Honestly, I can't sing the book's praises high enough. I definitely recommend going out and picking it up if you haven't had a chance. Anyhow, that does it for the segment. You long for the days of your youth? Running the tunnels of the hive carefree? Your best days aren't behind you when you reach for a bottle of wild snake. Take a break from the stress of your toil, or add it to your morning recap to start the day right. Wild snake, the only cure for what ails you. And that about does it for episode 5. Stay tuned. In a few weeks, we'll be back with House of Blades Part 2, where we'll delve into how Escher plays on the tabletop. If you like the show, please give us a subscribe and a rating on iTunes and whatever other platforms you access your podcast through. That's how new people find out about the show. Special thanks, as always, to Purple Planet at purpleplanet.com for the show's intro music. And until next time, may your guns never jam, and may you get first pickings of the scrape.